Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart. I am the pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of these forums, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. The issue today is teenage violence, and the voice of conscience belongs to Dr. Deborah Prothero-Stith, whose constructive program in schools has received national recognition. Dr. Prothero-Stith's interest in violence prevention grew out of her experience as a resident at Boston City Hospital, where she, what she calls a stitch them up and send them out response to violence led her to identify the epidemic of violence as a social disease that could be addressed by public health strategies. As a result, she wrote the first violence prevention curriculum for schools and wrote the book Deadly Consequences, which has received critical acclaim. She is also co-author of a new high school health textbook, which is the first to include an entire chapter devoted exclusively to violence prevention. Dr. Prothero Stith is Assistant Dean for Government and Community Programs at Harvard University's School of Public Health. An alumna of Spelman College and Harvard Medical School, she was the first woman and the youngest person to serve as Massachusetts Commissioner of Public Health. The recipient of three honorary doctorates for her work in public health, Dr. Prothero Stith was also awarded the World Health Day Award in 1993 and the Secretary of Health and Human Services Award in 1989. On the topic teenage violence, there is an answer. Please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Deborah Prothero Stith. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I am honored to be here and particularly thank the Westminster Town Forum for this opportunity and for the church and the co-sponsors uh, for this opportunity. It's good to come and share uh, ideas and meet people who are working on this problem. I'd like to start by reading a brief essay that was written by a young woman, Tanya Parker. Tanya is a member of the writing crew, a group of kids, really, teenagers and then young adults, who were organized by an ethnographer, Terry Williams. You may know his name because he wrote Crack House and Cocaine Kids. Terry decided to give back by teaching some teenagers and young adults how to write, and Tanya Parker wrote this. Within each and every one of us, there is a fear maybe a fear of flying, a fear of an animal, or even the fear of death. My worst fear is dying in the street. Every morning I wake up and I kiss my daughter and I thank God we have made it through the night. I live in Spanish Harlem and I am surrounded by crackheads and drug dealers. This is not the type of environment I want to raise my child up in but I'm stuck here until I get to a higher level. Every night I can hear loud explosions. The children run through the street screaming and cursing as though fighting were going on. And you know, a lot of times they're just doing that for fun because they want to be heard. They enjoy disturbing people at four o'clock in the morning by throwing bottles at cars just to hear the alarms go off. Sometimes I sit in the dark and I think about when is it all going to end or is this the end? I just keep feeling pain in my heart when I look at all the children in the street suffering. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Tears run down my face when I embrace my daughter and I pray she doesn't become another victim of life. Everyone is born an innocent baby that is full of joy. All they want is to be loved and comforted, and they want to have playtime and food. I began to wonder what goes through the minds of these teenagers that still 
receive love and comfort and playtime from their parents? Why do they resort to violence as a baby resorts to crying when hungry? What are they hungry for? Why do they resort to violence as a baby resorts to crying when hungry? What are they hungry for? I like Tanya's essay for several reasons. One is that it reminds me as a parent that my children are going to get my time, my attention, my money, and my resources one way or the other. It can be in the middle of a crisis at four o'clock in the morning, or it can be early on in their lives in a preventing and loving way that I give it, but one way or the other, they will get it. They will get my attention, they will get my time, they will get my money, they will get my resources. And I have realized that this is true for us as adult members of a society. The children in this society are going to get our time, our attention, our money, and our resources one way or the other. It's up to us to decide how and when and whether it's in a preventive fashion or not, but they will get it. What's also interesting about Tanya's uh, uh, essay is that in the last paragraph, she really asked us some important questions. She says, even when a child receives love and playtime and food from his or her family, why would they resort to violence as a child resorts to crying when hungry? What are they hungry for? I don't know the answer to those questions. I don't know the complete answer, but I think in part it lies in that African proverb that says, it takes a village to raise a child. It's not enough to have a healthy child in a healthy family. Because if the village or the community is unhealthy, when that child becomes an adolescent, you will begin to get some bad outcomes. We cannot rely on healthy children in healthy families, in unhealthy communities. And what I've learned about this problem of violence is that preventing violence is literally the business of building healthy communities around all of the children, not just some of the children. A man whose son was killed was interviewed and the reporter said, you did everything right. You sent your son to private school. He was an athlete and a scholar. He was well liked, had a scholarship to college. You did everything right yet he was killed. And the father looked up and said, I forgot to do one thing. I forgot to raise the other children. You see, this business of preventing violence is literally the business of building a healthy community around all of the children, not just some of the children. I got tired of stitching people up in the emergency room and sending them out and knowing that they were at risk for violence again. And it was unlike anything else I had been trained to do in medicine. For instance, if I treated somebody for heart disease, I was obligated to talk to them about diet and smoking and exercise and all of those things that put them at risk for heart disease. I had a prevention mission as a part of my caregiving. If a child was lead poisoned, I could get the lead out of the blood, but I also had a responsibility to make sure the house was de-leaded before the child went home. I had a prevention responsibility. With a suicide attempt, I had an obligation to make sure that that person was safe 
wasn't going to make that attempt again, and if needed to be hospitalized, was hospitalized. Not for physical reasons, but to prevent that person from making a subsequent suicide attempt. Everything I learned to do and was doing as a physician had as a part of it prevention except with this issue of violence against others where we were stitching people up and sending them out and treating this problem as if it were natural, inevitable, just a part of the human condition, as if there were no things we could do to prevent violence. I got a little tired of that and started asking some questions and decided that I wanted to know more. I've learned some things about violence in America that I want to share with you. A few things that surprised me. The first thing that I learned was that this country has a homicide rate that is a lot higher than other industrialized countries. Our homicide rate is about four times higher than the next highest country. Our homicide rate is 70, 70, 70 times higher than the country at the bottom of the list. I learned that we have a big American problem that other countries don't have. I realize violence is not a natural, inevitable part of the human condition. If it were, you would expect the homicide rate from country to country to be very similar. And the kind of wide discrepancy said to me, we're doing something wrong that we ought not do. Or there are things that we ought to do that we're not doing, or both. But we don't have to have this problem. We have a big American problem that we don't have to have. This is a preventable problem. Now, a lot of people think if we didn't have young black men or young Hispanic men, we wouldn't have a big problem. The homicide rate for white men in America is two and a half times higher than the next highest country, and 35 times higher than the country at the bottom of the list. Yes, young black men and young Hispanic men have high rates, two high rates. I live in Roxbury, which is Boston's urban, poor, predominantly black community with the highest homicide rate of any neighborhood in Boston. And people always ask me, what's going on in Roxbury? And that's an important question to ask because the homicide rate for young black and young Hispanic men is too, too, too high. But people forget to ask me, what's going on in America? What you might think is the norm the homicide rate for white men in America is 10, 15, 20, and 35 times higher than other countries. I learned that we have a big American problem that we don't have to have. And some people are at greater risk. Another thing that I learned, which shocked me, was that about half of the homicides in the United States occurs among friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and people who know each other who get into an argument. Almost half. Now that shocked me because our media coverage and our public policy and our fears are all about stranger bad guy violence. 20% of the homicides have to do with other felonies, drug trafficking, robbery, burglary. 2% have to do with gang activities. Add up all the stranger bad guy violence 
and you've got about 20%. And that 20% receives almost all of our attention and almost all of our resources. I was shocked to learn that in America, we have a big problem getting along, handling anger. And I realized more police, stiffer sentences, three strikes and you're out, won't have an impact on two people who know each other, who are drinking alcohol, who get into an argument, and who have a handgun. That's a pretty typical homicide setting in the United States. Now, in public health, we have the notion of primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention. If we were trying to prevent lung cancer, primary prevention would be what we do with people who don't smoke so that they don't start smoking. It has to do with attitudes and social norms. And you might remember when smoking was glamorous. I used to buy those little candy cigarettes when I was about eight years old. I used to stand in front of the television imitating all the beautiful people smoking. It was glamorous and hip and cool and popular. And now we have people standing outside in 10 degree weather smoking. <laughs> because it's offensive and unhealthy. That's the work of primary prevention. It has to do with attitudes and social norms. Secondary prevention is what we would do to help people who smoke stop smoking. That gets into counseling and behavior modification and sometimes group therapy and sometimes individual therapy. All kinds of fancy ways to help people stop. And then tertiary prevention is actually not really prevention, it's the response. It, it's what we do when you have lung cancer. It's the treatment, the surgery, the chemotherapy. Now when you apply this model to violence, I would suggest to you that we need some primary prevention around this problem of violence, not for the bad kids, but for all of us. Because we live in a country that enjoys violence, that is entertained by violence, that encourages and promotes violence. You know, when people ask me, so why is the homicide rate in the United States so high? What's the difference between the United States and other countries? Well, a lot of things come to mind. Guns come to mind. Guns represent a big part of our problem. Poverty comes to mind. Poverty represents a big part of our problem. Overcrowding comes to mind because of a study that was done in Atlanta. Overcrowding seems to be a part of the problem. But I think it's guns and it's poverty and it's overcrowding and it's alcohol use and other drug use and it's what I call our make my day ethic. It's that love of violence. You see, we've had a make my day president. We've had a kick butt president. Whether the president is a Democrat or a Republican, his popularity goes up when he bombs another country. Make my day comes from the movies and from their first cartoon when they learn to laugh at violence through the latest superhero movie where our children learn to admire violence, we've got a lifetime of messages all about violence as funny and successful and entertaining and guiltless and painless and only the bad guys get hurt and the superheroes are always there for the sequel to the movies. It's a bunch of lies about violence. People ask me about Beavis and Butthead, you know, when it was supposed to be related to the fire. It's not just Beavis and Butthead. It is a lifetime of messages teaching them that it's fun to kill, that you laugh at death, that violence is successful, the superhero's first choice. We need some primary prevention, not for the bad kids, but for all of us. We need a new attitude as Patti LaBelle might say. It's interesting because we've got presidents and movies and 
music and, and all of the ways that we enjoy and are entertained by violence. And then we have parents who don't want to wimp for a child. And they say things like, you go back outside and you beat him up or I'm going to beat you. I know this because all over the country, kids say that to teachers who are using the curriculum. And I can understand parents not wanting a wimp for a child, but on the other hand, what are we saying when we say go back out there and fight? And what about knives and what about guns and what's wrong that we don't have any other ways to handle conflict that we wind up saying to our kids, beat him up or I'm going to beat you. Hit him back harder if he ever hits you. It's interesting. And it's not just adults and entertainment and movies, kids with their whetted appetites for violence, set these fights up. They instigate, they pass rumors, they want to know what's happening, what's going up, what's going down. Somebody says three o'clock on the corner and you've got a crowd of kids, most of them expecting a fight, putting on that pressure. Most of them good kids, most of them don't fight. But if you know anything about adolescent development, you know if you've got a crowd of teenagers expecting a fight, you're probably going to get a fight. As I thought about our need for primary prevention, I realized that almost every message, at almost every level of communication with our children is at best ambivalent and at worst actively encourages and promotes violence. We need some primary prevention for all of us. Now we need some secondary prevention because we have children at risk. They tend to be urban, they tend to be poor, they tend to be young boys and young men, though I hear a lot about girls fighting these days, particularly from middle school principals. And they tend to be children who have witnessed a lot of violence or been victims of violence in their early childhood development. We need some secondary prevention because there are children at risk and we know these children. They are the children that we suspend from school regularly for fighting. They are the children that we stitch up in the emergency room and send out. They are the children who are standing in the corner when the police respond to calls of domestic violence, having watched their mother beaten. They are the children throwing bottles at cars at four o'clock in the morning just to hear the alarms go off. We know these children and we need some secondary prevention because they are at risk. Now, tertiary prevention around this issue of violence is stitching people up, putting them in intensive care, arresting them, prosecuting them, defending them, putting them in jail, maybe doing rehabilitation. It's the response to the problem. I was just in Milwaukee a while back, and I had a chance to talk to the mayor and he told me about a horrible murder that had taken place in Milwaukee. And with some understandable satisfaction, he told me that a 17-year-old had been convicted of that murder for 73 years. This 17-year-old would be in prison with no parole and no probation and no chance out. And right before he told me about that, we were talking about the summer jobs program in Milwaukee. And the mayor told me that they'd had an increase that summer, but they still didn't have enough. In fact, they had about 10% of what they needed. It dawned on me. We are willing to spend $35,000 a year for 73 years on the same kid we wouldn't give a $2,000 summer job. We spend a lot of money on this problem. Almost all of it responding to the problem. 
I can't get an after-school program for a young man in the teen clinic because there are no more subsidized slots. He can walk out the clinic, get shot. I can spend $30,000 a day in intensive care. Same young man. We spend a lot of money on this problem, almost all of it responding to the problem. When we know the kids at risk. And you know what? It's a low down, dirty shame that we wait on these kids to do something horrible before we respond to them. I can't think of another way to describe it. It is shameful that we construct public policy that's all about getting aggressive after the violence and ignoring the kids at risk. What are we? Senseless? In 1980, we had a half a million people in jails and prisons in the United States, one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. In 1990, after a decade of getting tough on crime, we had a million people in jails and prisons, the highest incarceration rate in the world. We doubled the number of people in jails and prisons from 1980 to 1990, and violent crime went up. 12% in that decade. And at the federal level, and at the state level, and at the local level, we talk about crime prevention bills that are all about more jails, more prisons. What are we, senseless? Have we lost it? Our public policy doesn't reflect good sense. It doesn't reflect what we know about the problem. I'm thankful for this opportunity to share with you because I know we can prevent violence. We can change this situation. We have a problem we don't have to have. And you know what? We have no choice but to solve this problem. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Prothero-Stith, for this very, very thoughtful, challenging, stimulating, encouraging, hopeful presentation. I would ask you, how do you perceive the current role models and heroes? Uh, can you say a bit more about that, about who they, who they are, mm -hmm. uh, and the impact that that has on, on violence and on solution to the problem. I think that um, this business of getting along requires some skills. It requires skills of adults, it requires skills of children. It also requires that we celebrate getting along and I have a problem in that very few of our heroes or superheroes, especially those for our children, are models of getting along. In fact, if you think about what you need to get along, uh, it's uh, forgiveness, it's compromise, it's mediation, it's negotiation, it's empathy, all it's ability to apologize. It's all kind of wimpy sounding stuff. We don't even celebrate the skills that you need 
to get along. And I think part of the problem is that our children have heroes, and as adults, we have heroes who are not models of getting along. We don't celebrate nonviolence. Uh, can you imagine a hard copy edition on the fight that didn't happen? Look, he was angry and his friend was in his face and it was escalating and the tension was growing and the other friend knew mediation skills and got there and was able to talk to him and use the real clever technique. And the fight didn't happen. We have to learn to celebrate getting along in addition to learning the skills of getting along. So I have some concern about our current heroes. One questioner asks, Japanese children are exposed to more media violence. Why is their homicide rate so low? That's an important question, because I kind of think of the problem that we have as sort of like a slot machine. And you know how you have to get five or seven oranges in order to get the jackpot? Well, we've got in our windows this issue of widening gaps of poverty, gun availability, cocaine and crack epidemics, alcohol use. And in one of those windows is this issue of, of ethics or the media and the entertainment and this make my day ethic. And um, one answer to that question is that the issue of healthy community and the issues of how many windows are filled are different in the United States versus Japan. And in some ways, perhaps the media impact is different. I'd also offer that if you look at Japanese television and American television, you will see about equal episodes of violence or perhaps more on Japanese television. But what you will also see is a different kind of violence. The superhero in Japan is considered to have failed at the point that he's using violence. It's not a first choice, make my day because I like beating you up and so I'm just sitting here waiting on an opportunity. It is a last resort failure because I wasn't smart enough to figure out how to solve this problem so I have to lose faith to participate in violence. So I think the characteristics of the violence are different in a way that may prevent a problem there. One person says let's legalize drugs. Doesn't the one public probing step that could uh, reduce violence in our society, isn't it to decriminalize the use of drugs? Let's make the use of mood-altering addictive substances a public health problem and not a criminal, criminal problem. Would you respond to that, please? I offer in the debate around legalizing drugs a way of decriminalizing it that is not legalizing but I call it medicalizing it. It allows people who have addictions to get drugs in some sort of clinical setting but not make drugs legal to the extent that alcohol is legal and therefore use goes up. I offer that as an as a interim kind of public policy position because one of the biggest drugs involved in this issue of violence is alcohol. And the use of alcohol went up after prohibition. It seems in some ways logical. So I don't want to substitute the drug trafficking violence which is actually a small part of violence in America. Four, uh, I, I don't want to substitute more interpersonal violence for that drug trafficking violence. I'm afraid if we completely legalize drugs, use will go up and we will see more problems as a result of that. I understand that there are, that there are cards like baseball cards that are traded with serial killers. An example is Jeffrey Dahmer. How do you respond to this? What does the society do about that? Every once in a while I get real discouraged and when I read about things like that it's uh, one of those moments. Um, 
Another such moment was when I read that the LA County Medical Examiner's Office was selling uh, T-shirts and mugs with the outline of a dead body on it, the kind that the police paint on the street, and they were selling toe tags. You could get toe tags with people's names written on them. They were getting a thousand calls a week. This was started by a 53-year-old woman, and I really wanted to talk to her. I wrote her a letter, but I didn't get a response. But I, I really wanted to talk to her because at the end of the article, she said, well, we were donating money to um, the violence prevention programs in, in the area. And I, I, that just bothered me that uh, we are so callous to the, the murder of others that we would sell um, cards of the murderers or, or cards that um, uh, in some ways celebrate uh, that murder. I, I have problems with that, and I, I don't know where we would draw the line. I think each of us draws the line at a different place as to what bothers us and what doesn't. But I think some things are clearly over the line, and there's a group, a uh, national group, Parents of Murdered Children, and for the Christmas holidays, they sent out a card that um, kicked off their campaign, Murder is Not Entertainment, M-I-N-E, mine. Murder is Not Entertainment. And inside the card was a list of all of the things that suggest the toys, the games, uh, that suggest that murder is entertaining. Uh, I hope they keep up that campaign because for a family who's lost someone to a murder, think of the persons in the families of people killed by Jeffrey Dahmer. How insulting it must be to have people buying a card celebrating such a tragedy. One person says, I teach conflict resolution skills in a church and I am always disheartened that my students, Christian students, cannot come up with nonviolent solutions to their problems. Would you give us some specific ideas as to how to teach nonviolence? <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. In fact, um, I uh, want to do a Sunday school version of the violence prevention curriculum and one that could perhaps be used in Saturday school and in synagogues and in temples because I think that um, organized religion, communities of faith, have something to offer this uh, problem of, uh, of violence. And, and, and I'm, I'm discouraged that, um, uh, that, that we haven't done that as of yet. And, and violence has become so popular that I think um, communities of faith have been overwhelmed by it. And uh, our attempts to uh, make nonviolence popular or offer solutions are, um, are underwhelming. Um, it just seems that uh, teaching the skills of getting along will require every institution and every individual uh, in this society. So I strongly urge uh, communities of faith to get on board. I, before, I, I, this is a long answer to that question because I'm reminded of a um, Phil Donahue show that I saw when um, Reginald Denny, the truck driver who was beaten in LA, was on and um, Mr. Watson, the man who was uh, accused but acquitted of beating him was also on and the jurors were on and several family members of both men and there was a discussion going on as to uh, the case and what happened and the audience was hostile toward Reginald Denny. I mean, very hostile. And as Phil Donahue went around the audience, you know, one woman said, well, I just wish you hadn't hugged his mother in the courtroom. If you hadn't hugged his mother, they'd have convicted him of this crime and sent him to jail. And what's all this forgiveness stuff anyway? Why were you talking about forgiveness? Why don't you just let the courts do what they were supposed to do? This man should be in jail. And then he went around to another person in the audience and the same hostility came forward and then finally Reginald Denny said, well, um, forgiveness is a part of my religion. So then the lady in the audience said, well, I don't know what kind of religion you have. 
thought, my God, I don't know all the world's religions. But those that I know have a lot in there about forgiveness. So Reginald Denny said, well, I'm a Christian. And she said, well, I don't know what kind of Christian you are. And I thought, well, I know that religion. And I know there's a lot in there about forgiveness. And it's interesting that we are so put upon by the forces that would have us be mean and tough and entertained by violence that some very basic skills that we need to get along aren't a part of our culture, not a part of what we celebrate. I try to get kids to recognize when fights are escalating. It's easier to prevent them early on than late when the fight is about to start. And I ask them not to pass rumors, not to instigate, not to run to see the fight. If the fight is over here, run over there. There are other skills, like eye messages if you're in a confrontation. There are skills that friends can use, like saying something as simple as, I wouldn't let that bother me, or that really doesn't matter. Let's go do something else, distracting your friends. So there are lots of skills that can be taught. I think we have to teach them uh, in communities of faith as well as in schools. Here's a, a comment and question. I think this is from one of the younger members of the audience who says suspensions, school suspensions, are part of the problem. And this person says, people have rights to watch violent movies. That doesn't mean that I am a killer if mm -hmm. I watch a violent movie. Why just teenage violence? Where do they learn it from? Mm -hmm. What about environment and media? Are adults giving up on us? Is there good violence? Why call it a problem? Interesting, very interesting set of questions. Um, I call it a problem because I see the tragedy of it. I see the hurt, the pain, the tears, the families that will never be the same. One of the most difficult things I ever had to do was to go out and tell a family that the young man they sent off to school that day uh, was now dead. I call it a tragedy because I think it is. It's a problem we don't have to have. Uh, you are right. We have a right <laughs> to watch violent movies. And they don't have the same impact on all of us. I think they have a small impact on all of us. I think they make us more callous. I think they make us less empathetic toward victims of violence. I think they make us more concerned about stranger bad guy violence and less concerned about getting along. I think they affect the way we make public policy. But I think that impact is smaller than the large impact it has on a small number of kids. One probation officer told me that he thought young boys raised in the absence of adult men who were nonviolent were more susceptible to that stranger, I mean, that uh, superhero, macho, bravado image. And that unless you have that man in your life as a young boy who can counter that image and show you how to be a man without violence, uh, you are more susceptible. I think the movies and the television represent a part of the problem. One researcher says it's 10% of the problem. That's Leonard Eron. He's a psychologist out of uh, University of Chicago. Another researcher says it's 50% of the problem. That's Brandon Centerwall. He looked at homicide rates in Canada, in white South Africa, and in the United States. And in each of those three countries, after the introduction of television, the homicide rates doubled. Uh, the verdict is out as to the impact of violent programming on children. The American Psychological Association has issued a major report. We've had a Surgeon General's report on this issue. I'm not so much concerned about children as I am about the adults who would make money off of these children. I really think that's a problem. The writers, the producers, the actors, the entertainers, the promoters, the people who advertise during these shows, I have a real problem with that. 
I don't know. I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem we can solve, and I think movies and television represent a part of that problem. Thank you. Are you able to measure any positive results in schools where you have installed violence prevention programs? Would you please cite examples? Uh, yes, actually, we are now collecting uh, the results of evaluations of several programs because this is an important question. Right now, I can give you anecdotal and two evaluation uh, summaries, but we hope to produce um, a, a much larger report that really answers uh, this question. Uh, I'll save the anecdotal for the, the story on which I'll close. But the um, evaluation of the violence prevention curriculum for adolescents has two formats. One was a three-year use in uh, the Jeremiah Burke High School in Boston in 10th grade health classes. And 10th grade is a required class. So after three years, the school is 10th, 11th, and 12th. After three years, a large percent of the students in the school had had the curriculum. The suspension rates for violence dropped dramatically. It actually was about two-thirds over those three years. Now, it's difficult to say that the curriculum caused that drop in suspensions. One, because the way suspensions are decided upon and measured is not reliable in a school system. Uh, the research didn't require that ahead of time. And two, a lot of other things went on during those three years. For instance, the school library was renovated and computers were put in. So some positive things were happening in addition to using the curriculum. So the best we can say is that the curriculum was associated with a decline in the fighting. Um, and, uh, and that gave us encouragement to go forth. There was actually another problem, which is that we didn't have a time series. We didn't have suspension rates far back enough to know the usual waxing and waning of suspension rates in order to say how significant that drop uh, actually was. The second evaluation was done in six cities, one classroom in six cities, and uh, because of the difficulties of doing evaluation in schools, we only got four uh, sets of data from four cities back, four complete sets. And what we could say from that evaluation is that the students who had the most risky profiles actually in two questions had very significant changes. One was that they were less likely to report having a fight in the last week. Now, being less likely to report having a fight in the last week could mean that you had less fights or you just didn't want to report that you had the same fight. So, so it may just be that we measured an attitude change uh, rather than a behavior change, but that was uh, the, the impact that we could measure. Uh, there are other initiatives, Resolving Conflict Creatively, the STEP program out of uh, Seattle, Washington, uh, which have evaluations. And I think when we collect enough of these, we'll be able to say something more uh, definitively. But I think those persons working in the area could tell you uh, a story like the one I will share uh, at the end, which is really the anecdotal evidence that keeps us going. One last question, which will require a, a brief answer. <laughs> Fortunately, I, I wish it were longer, could be longer. Lots of physicians have experienced the trauma of hospital emergency rooms, but you're the one that stepped forward with a fresh perspective. And my question is, what in your own personal history led you to ask the question and to pursue an answer to the epidemic of violence? What gave you hope that we could do more than stick our finger in the dike? Well, I've thought about that on occasion because it is a common situation for people to say, don't go to bed, I'm going to be back in here and I'm going to send the person who cut me in here and to talk about revenge. I guess I was a bit unwilling to accept um, that this was a problem uh, that was natural to young black men and that was sort of the prevailing thought that some people were just like that and young black men in particular. Well, I had known too many black men who were not violent my in my family. My father was 
not violent. My father never spanked me. I mean, this was a very interesting uh, situation. And I had lots of friends whose fathers were not violent, and my husband was not violent, and my sons were not violent. So I had this sense that um, we shouldn't just accept or tolerate this violence as if it were natural, as if some people were just that way. And I think that was part of it, just having the, the family experience. I have gotten better at handling my anger. Uh, and, uh, and so I believe that this is something that uh, we can do. And the story that I wanted to tell you is a story about believing uh, in this uh, ability to get along. A young man who was sent to Boston by his uh, family because of violence in LA and his involvement in, in gangs there, started working with the Violence Prevention Project. And they, at Boston City Hospital, worked with him over the summer. He became a trainer and actually got very involved in, in teaching others to use the curriculum. And about two months ago, he told us this story, and he was sharing it in the context of a, of a meeting. He said, I was walking down the street and this young man came up to me and confronted me in a way that made me very frightened. Had I been in LA, I would have just shot or stabbed him. Uh, I really thought he was gonna hurt me. He said, I thought about walking away. And the only reason I thought about walking away is because we had been talking about all this violence prevention stuff. Um, but then I decided to try it. The only reason I decided to try it was because I thought I was going to get killed anyway. He said, I turned and I walked and I kept walking and nothing happened. And later I saw that young man on the basketball court and we wound up playing on the same side because we realized there wasn't that much bad between us. Well, when he told that story, that really renewed my belief in what we're doing. Walk away is a very difficult concept. It's one of the more difficult skills. There are easier skills, and I've practiced and I've gotten better. And I think it's important as a society that we believe in our ability to prevent violence and that we believe in our ability to get along. And the only way to do that is to learn some of the skills and to practice them. You'll have some successes and you'll learn better how to do it and you'll keep practicing it. And I know as we do that and with our kids, as we teach them to do that, we'll get better. I know because we don't have a choice. We have to do this. Thank you again. Thank you so much.